Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the internet. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) Welcome to the second series of The Pleasure Podcast. We're kicking off our first episode with multi-award winning comedian, author, actor, documentary maker and fellow podcaster Sarah Pascoe. This year her comedy show Lads 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 had a primetime BBC2 special and her new BBC2 sitcom has just been announced. It's on family dynamics, sex and the reason humans behave the way they do, a theme Sarah has become master of. Sarah's first book, Animal, was part autobiography, mixing feminism, memoir and evolutionary biology. And now Sex, Power, Money, her second non-fiction, is an utterly insightful, funny and sensitive exploration of the way human behaviour and modern masculinity is underpinned by wealth and economics. This episode has mentions of rape, sexual violence and suicide. We visited Sarah and her dog Mouse in her lovely home in London to discuss her new book, which is why you might hear some puppy water slurping and paw pattering. I wrote a theatre version of Pride and Prejudice last year or the year before, and so that was a gap. So I was researching the book and then suddenly I was doing Pride and Prejudice, which I thought was an entirely different topic. But because of what I was studying for my book, which was... um, people paying for sexual behaviours. Pride and Prejudice was at a time where women didn't have, um, well, didn't have any legal rights. They had the legal rights of a child. And it's a really romantic book that everyone thinks is really romantic and what a lovely story and Mr Darcy. But because I was reading it, having been interviewing sex workers, I found it so depressing because there was a situation where five sisters and their friend Charlotte, if they didn't get married, would be effectively homeless. And, and that's when I think money became much, much bigger for me, is that because a little bit like sex, we don't like to talk about money as a society and it's rude. But when you don't have any, you don't have any autonomy, you don't have any power. And then that's for me when there was like, oh, there's these three big things that underwrite human behaviours. And if we don't face up to them really openly, they're insidiously affecting or undermining our lives. I want us to talk a little bit about erotic capital, which is a phrase that I hadn't heard before, Mm. which I think your friend had introduced you. um, Yeah, I think it was one of the sex workers I first spoke to. But obviously the people who work in any kind of transactional sex or sexual behaviour, that they all understand what erotic capital is because that's what they're trading on. So it's odd because I think, and Naomi might be the same as me, I think my entire life I was taught not to trade on it whatsoever. You were completely undermined. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously, I do stand-up comedy now, and um, uh, I sometimes do stand-up on TV and stuff, and there's a whole thing with women in comedy which Catherine Ryan completely changed because before then... Everyone was wearing anoraks pretending we were boys because if there was any sense that you thought you were pretty or you thought you might be nice to look at, we were kind of some of people at comedy um, courses, but 
more so implicitly, we were told that audiences would hate us, that men and women would not respond to a woman who looked like she thought she was worth looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you know what? I was told really early on, um, if you dress up nice, the women in the audience will hate you because the boyfriend they're sitting next to will want to fuck you. And also I say that because now I'm 38. And again, this is not my life, but I started stand up when I was in my mid 20s when I did not feel in any way confident. But I now see looking back, I was a young woman with long blonde hair and like relatively slim and and um but people were set, people, other comedians tried to tell me, because you're not going on stage as a fat middle-aged man, you can't make fun of your appearance in the way, so you're going to have to be really careful. Mm. Like one male comedian said to me, you don't have a thing you can go on and laugh at, so, I mean, you probably won't have a career. <laughs> because he said, no, because people go on and go, I've got a big nose, this, or, you know, I'm a love child between so-and-so and so-and-so, and you're, the beginning of comedy is, this you is why I'm a clown. derogatory yes. to yourself immediately yes. to make yeah. yourself smaller. Which actually, I've realised there's an uncomfortableness if it looks like the person does think it's true. I've seen a lot of women who aren't fat call themselves fat on stage or a lot of women who are very attractive. And I mean, as in like, I like looking at them, but who talk about, oh, I can't get a boyfriend because I'm so disgusting. And you just go like, oh no, this is bad. You mean this? This isn't funny in any way. This is you just hating yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, how awful Mm. that necessity, that feeling, that cultural necessity to undermine yourself in order to be liked. But it was wrong. That's the thing is that... um, I should have judged from my own feeling then. I never w- w- looked at a woman on stage and thought, oh, no, my boyfriend wants to fuck her. I'm not going to laugh at her jokes. But you do write about in the book, though, yeah. about men who mentally undress or imagine sex acts with every person they see. I do think it was really related to their pornography consumption. So that's the thing, is it wasn't about men in general doing that. And also, when the first person told me that that's what they, their boyfriend did... I thought he was just very ill. <laughs> like, I didn't think it was... It was only when another, when my boyfriend at the time said, oh, I do that as well. Oh, it happens if I've watched a lot of porn. I, I was thinking that it must be like, um, you know, hospitals are never never have white walls because if you've been doing a long operation, you see blood on white. Wow. So that's why they're quite often like an off-green. because it, it makes This it, I did not know. So like anything, like staring at a light, if you are doing a very long operation, um, you can see it afterwards but there's certain colours that make it less likely for the blood. And and that's why hospitals are never just... You think, why well, just paint it nice? white? It, it cancels the colour out. And so I was thinking it must be like that. If you've been looking at the same thing for ages and ages, of course it goes... I, I sometimes get really addicted to computer games and then dream about it or... Well, I was playing Do you play f- The Sims at all? No. Because I walk around sometimes... Trying to think if you can move people. Yeah. Well, I had a thing where, because of Fruit Ninja, I'd have played it so much, that in the supermarket, I thought I could swipe. Like, <laughs> I had an instinct with apples to go. And that, so, so I can absolutely understand if, you, if someone's been watching porn for hours a day, then people will become bits of meat that just slot into each other. And it's actually not as dark as I thought it was when I first heard about it. I mean, it still is grim. Reading the book, it taught me so much about our behaviour now based on our evolutionary development. Mm. And I think I had really pushed away initially those ideas before reading about this, that I was in any way really connected to what my base instincts might have been as an animal, as opposed to sort of, I don't know, I thought of myself as some elevated intellectual human being who is way above all of those instincts. And at first, I felt like, oh, damn, we're still so threaded into those instincts and those imperatives Mm. that we thought we were moved from. But then it started to make me feel more 
empathy yeah. and more um, forgiveness and kindness towards certain things like the male gaze, mm. for example, and even understanding the patriarchy a little bit better. I think I always felt like the head of the patriarchy was some gentleman up at the top of the mm. world with some moustache, twiddling his moustache, yes. with, um, with, with grand plans, yes. with a grand evil yeah, plan. Yeah, so there's this a thing about, um, and again it comes from our evolution, that when we feel pain we assume it's intended and the example is that if you are walking through a cave and a rock falls on you and like hits you on the head you look for like who did that and your body actually responds with aggression and that's what's so annoying when it's an inanimate object you're like I cannot fight you or even say why did you do that and yeah, you, you yeah. have this little bad temper you just have to keep to yourself and really similarly and I'm exactly the same as you for ages I thought there were kind of Machiavellian evil people controlling it and doing it on purpose because that's often how especially feminism sets it out like this all works for the patriarchy or this this is for this reason and often it's accidental side effects of something else that's going on yeah it, ma it made me feel that maybe if we started to understand our biology a bit better like for example in school saying yes. look this is why you're so yeah. fucking horny right now yeah. <laughs> that yeah. we don't live on the great plains anymore wherever yes. it might be so yeah. we don't have this imperative yeah. to, to reproduce yeah. right now and also your body has no morality like we as a society have morality and you personally have a morality but your body doesn't and they do, and so you should be able to like just go like oh that's funny you did that body <laughs> but like rather than Oh my God, I'm a bad person, it signifies other things. Your body instinctually reacts to its environment as it always has, yeah. and you then have the cerebral ability to either negate that or go, actually, yeah. this is a really good feeling and I'm with someone and maybe the flush to my penis is because I really fancy them. Yes. Hopefully you can learn to negotiate that. Yeah. And if you've got a load of shame and a load of negative cultural or religious judgment like about... I be attracted to this person. Yes. I, I shouldn't be attracted to this person. You know, I mean, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm married. Yeah. You know, how can I possibly be looking at someone else? Yes. Or she's a bit young. Yeah. Why I am that, I so when I was researching for my first book, that was the biggest thing for me. Because what we do, because we think that sexual attraction is an important signifier, it means something, it's meaningful. Um, when you were in a long-term relationship, this is what my first book was much more about kind of monogamy and, 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 and human beings and how that's evolved. Um, so we think it must mean something because every time I'm around Tracy, like you say, like I, my, I get engorged. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I get excited when I'm going to see her. I just I light up a little bit. I've been thinking about her a lot. And so rather than going like, oh, that's because your body is trying to create as many other replications of your genes as possible. Okay, calm down then. It's all right. It's not because Tracy and me are meant to be together. It's not because I should throw everything away. We can make a more rational decision while also going, it's all right, but I fancy Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that my relationship is a bad place for me or over or all of those kind of things. Because I think that's what we do a lot is go, oh my God, it's not working. I keep looking at Tracy. I feel like this could, just because Love Island has just finished and I did, oh, yeah. did become a bit obsessed with it. I told yes. myself I wouldn't this year. And yeah, like, no, same, same. I, it's interesting because of what you're podcasting about, because obviously they're having discussions about kind of along a very heteronormative line, but about the rules mm. and the expectations. Mm. Well, there was yeah. quite a lot of chat about what I suppose you were just saying yeah. about, oh, I fancy somebody yeah. else. Obviously, I've got to trust my gut. I've got to trust mm. my instinct. I've got to be true to myself. All these sort of phrases yes. that are used yeah. again and again. Mm. I've got to say to the, my partner, well, actually, often they didn't say to their partner, yes. I fancy someone else. They would yeah. then manufacture fake reasons, fake yeah. arguments. Which because, would mean yeah, because there's this assumption that when you like one person enough, you will stop noticing other people. Yes. And actually, that's part of the bonding process, which does happen, but it happens not at the very beginning, and then it does wear off after a couple of years. There's a bit where your dopamine cycle in your brain basically makes you 
obsessed with someone because it, they have become so dopamine is always goal orientated for your survival and if you're going to breed with someone that is absolutely your survival and the survival of your genes so you have a really really strong kind of addiction to a person that wanes but also it has to build and you don't always have it at the beginning because it wouldn't be useful to just have that straight away with the first person, especially if you're not sleeping together. Nothing stimulates more dopamine than the desire to want to pass on your genes. Mm. And, and the dopamine in your brain will basically give you blinkers. So yeah. often, I don't know if you've ever gone out with someone, your friend's like, what the hell are yeah. you doing with that person? Yeah. And it's because your dopamine blinkers yeah. are up, you can't And that's what's weird about off. it, but the other side of it, because I'm sure you as well, I don't know if you've been in a relationship, I mean, where it starts to wear off and you start to go, oh, who is this man? Yeah. It's almost it's like you just start hearing what they're saying. Mm. Like, oh, wow. Like the veil falls from your eyes. Yeah, but, I, it, but it's so connected to good sex as well. But always beware the people who are brilliant in bed. Have you, there's, a, there's a song by um, Robots in Disguise called The Sex Has Make Me, Made Me Stupid that I really, really loved in my 20s. It's yeah. like, oh, absolutely. And Catherine Ryan used to call it being digmatised. Yes. <laughs> The thing that really made me feel uncomfortable is the fact that we are not educated as young people yeah. enough to understand why that we feel the way we do. Yeah. And therefore, we end up living a lot of our teenage and early... Well, you, know, you could live till adulthood, yes, you know, till yeah. you die, not fully understanding that, yes, you are an animal in part. Yeah. There is a primate or primal part of your brain that behaves as it always has mm. for the last you know, several hundred thousand yes. years of and, evolution. Yeah. And also that it's done that so successfully to us as a species, like our sexuality, our sexual drives, in being so elastic and the fact that actually even in the most terrible human conditions, whether it's like, you know, a holocaust or the most terrible war or famine people will still fall madly in love with each other and and be horny like and that's a survival thing like that's how we're still here as a species i wasn't going to necessarily talk about this so early but yeah. sort of um, you know you referenced sort of hebophilia yeah, yeah. in the book mm. which is you know um you know, i think people conflate sort of a paedophilia we're yes. from being from you know, zero all the way to 18 yeah, absolutely. but actually there is and I, I think this might be challenging for some people, there seems to be a difference in the way people interpret sexual signals from, say, 0 to 12 yes. or from 12 to 18. Which makes complete sense because if you... I mean, because sexual signals from post-12, if in a very animal sense, once people are able to breed, they are sexual signals. I think we'd all agree as a society that no-one should act on those signals. So that's a cultural thing, but... The fact is that someone under 12 isn't giving sexual signals, which doesn't mean someone might not find them sexually attractive, which obviously we know is a really, really problematic and difficult thing. But they're so distinct, aren't they? And it must be very confusing for men who find younger people attractive. So I hadn't yeah. even come across the term hebophilia yeah. before this, before reading your book. No, so I, I met somebody. I don't know if I say in my book what happened. Did I say how I, I learned what it was? No. I was at a um, Hugh Grant's birthday party. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so I, I got... So first, this is what I have to then explain, because it sounds like, oh, I'm just friends with Hugh Grant. I'm not. Um, so <laughs> so the, uh, every year, Hugh Grant... And I haven't signed a non-disclosure, so I'm allowed to say this. Um, every year, one of his friends, Evan, gives him a party that he'll hate. <laughs> so Hugh Grant hates his birthday, but his friend Evan wants to throw him a party, and, and they, they run um, hacked off together with some other people. So what he does is it's always a surprise. It's always a horrible surprise and something he doesn't want. And one year, um, Hugh Grant is a... Um, he always thinks he's sick and hates gross things, so whatever that is. 
Hypochondriac? Hypochondriac. And so it was in a museum full of medical specimens. And he also doesn't like feminism. So I was employed as the trick to do feminist stand-up while he had to stand and watch it in a No More Page 3 t-shirt. Right, so this, could, this should have been a nightmare, but they paid me £500 in cash in an envelope. And it, they said it's Hugh Grant's birthday party. So I actually thought, do you know what? This is quite... This is a story, isn't it? So, yeah. so I did it. The next year they said, oh, do you want to come to Hugh Grant's birthday party as a guest? So and I just got in the world. Well, until I found out the theme, which is people Hugh thinks are mad. <laughs> so oh. everyone at the party... Were like people you really got on with, probably. <laughs> yeah, it was a really interesting party. <laughs> and so I'm talking to a young woman and she uses the word hebophilia because um, she, the reason she knew the people from Hacked Off was that um, she had had a court case because she took her previous partner to court um, because he was, a, he was a hebophile. And I was like, what's a hebophile? And so basically... She, she, I won't say, so I'll say nothing identifying, but essentially he was in some form of teaching and had a relationship with her, which she believed was an absolutely uh, uh, relationship nothing. of equals and love and love. And it was a loving relationship, how she felt it. And then and her parents knew about it and were accommodating. And then he cheated on her with her little sister and, and, has, and has now had a long-term relationship. And that's when she realised that she, well, she just felt very differently about it, that she had been groomed mm. and that um, it was her age rather than anything else. And obviously what a traumatic, and she was an incredibly like brave and together woman. Yeah. But that's when I heard about it. And she explained that to me. She went, no, it's not paedophilia mm. if the person is post-adolescent. or You have this brilliant section where you talk about um, an ex um, having quite a strong reaction mm. to seeing a young girl yeah. and her bottom in, in these tiny little hot pants yeah. and he was quite angry about yeah. how could she be let out like this yeah he was angry with her parents and he was angry I think with teenage girls not dressing in an appropriate way because as an older man and when I say older I mean I think he was late 20s or early 30s at the time but but that they had a responsibility to not I don't know give men erections to or police make their men sexuality, to police their sexuality. And, and I feel yeah. like socially it's, it's very yeah. much about covering up like there are lots of religious societies or certain cultural communities where you must cover up because actually it's your duty not to turn the men on yes. and the men then go oh well I'm feeling turned on and because actually I'm not meant to feel turned on because you're so young mm. um, I'm then going to blame you or your parents or whoever about how you've been brought up mm. it's because it's not my fault because I feel so ashamed mm. you've made me feel like this exactly. yeah. what you've done to me yeah, well, which is what they used to have in the olden days, you know. Um, so they, the the crime of rape used to be called ravishing. So like he ravished her, which we think of as a, like a word kind of connotating passion, but it kind of was that. It was like you couldn't help yourself, so you ravished her, and it wasn't a kind of a consenting activity. Um, yeah, they would they would use that word to kind of diminish the man's responsibility. And have you read the book? You probably haven't, but um, there's a book called Pamela. Have you read this? At university, yeah. really? Yes, yeah. So at university is when I was made yeah. to read it. And uh, have you read this book? And then Shamala. Yes, Shamala afterwards, <laughs> yeah. So um, Pamela was huge. It was like Fifty Shades of Grey at the time, which would be really surprising to you because it's a book about a man who keeps, a squire, who keeps uh, sexually assaulting his um, a servant and he keeps trying and keeps trying and the, and the book is all told from letters she writes to her parents and every time he tries to ravish her um, she faints because of the shock of it so he can't he can't force himself on her and eventually he locks her in an attic and she's writing to her parents desperate to get out she's so imprisoned and eventually he finally because he's tried so many times to rape her and can't he decides he will marry her and it's a story about um, women keeping their virtue and just fight them off until you win their respect 
And the story ends with him saying, I actually have a daughter from a woman who wasn't as strong as you. <laughs> and, and, and they adopt the daughter so that, she, the, that Pamela can bring her up in this really, um, to be more like her. And women bought it. Like, it was bought by women who thought it was a sexy story. <laughs> Mass doesn't like that either, I'm sorry. <laughs> Good for you, Mass. Yeah. Good for you. Human's inventiveness to do with relationships and family units or increasingly choosing not to have families at all. It feels like it started to outstrip our evolutionary programming, but yet we are still at the mercy of them. Yes. So that yeah. it feels like there's a push and a pull there that's quite problematic. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because some people would argue the opposite. What's different is that we have the science now to choose. Some people choose to then like, have IVF and some people, they would choose to use contraception and not have children. But there's an argument in terms of overpopulation that absolutely this is part of evolution. And also um, that homosexuality is completely connected to that. There are evolutionary theories that the more people who don't have children in a society, the more they strengthen their relatives' genes. So it's a really important part of the gene pool. So people who don't have children, your brothers and sisters have children. And if you don't, you give into their life with your resources, your attention, your extra caregiving, and that strengthens their chances. And that's still my genes. I've got nieces. And um, if we all have children, we're all going to suffer the consequences of overpopulation. So the fact is, it's an intellectual and a physiological response of going, there's too many children, and there's not enough care at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really interesting thing that you could argue it from the other perspective, is we've just got other forces at the mm -hmm. same time. If there's lots of boys in a family, the second, third and fourth boys are yeah. more likely to become homosexual. Yeah, it's just be, so fascinating. Be, be homosexual. And that's just chemical in the, in the woman's body, in terms of the, the way that the brain develops. It's sort of scary, because it makes me think that this could be used as a um, homophobic argument. In an odd way, some of the study is proving that it was a biological determined thing, ah, not, rather than a choice not like, oh my God, you took them to nurture. too many musicals. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because there's lots of blame when something is considered abnormal or out of the norm. Yeah. It's like the side that are that person yeah. um, have to try and fight for a reason to be acceptable. Yes. And, the, yeah. and the side that do not find it acceptable. I have to find a reason why you are of not of value or yes. abnormal or yeah, terrible. Yeah, can be or, dismissed. Yeah. Um, with trans people at the moment, there's a similar thing where some people are trying to do experiments on trans people, just in terms of the brain and the shape, for very similar reasons, because we don't know exactly where sexual identity lives. But one person might go, that's completely unethical. Another person might go, brilliant. The minute we've actually got a thing to go, oh, there you go. Trans women are born in a biologically male body, but this part of their brain, this is why. There'll be such, like, in some ways, rejoicing of, like, can we stop discussing it now? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. But humanity yes. has this real drive to want to explain everything, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. You know, we have to explain why the earth goes around the sun rather than the other way yeah. and however when people were believing that actually you know, everything orbits the earth yeah. you're a heretic if you thought mm. otherwise yeah. and yeah. science hasn't caught up with everything yet i guess I, I immediately get frightened of those sorts of experiments because immediately i start to think of eugenics and i start yeah. to think of like where is this information going to go and ha yeah. how how would be used yeah, how could it be used against people yeah, you think about yeah. how yeah it's absolutely used. right because you do suddenly think think oh imagine a mother not wanting to have any more sons like because she's incredibly homophobic or like a a fundamentalist mm. religious person or something like that, of course. But then all science that's amazing has also been used for evil things. True. Like True. the Nobel Prize is named after the inventor of dynamite. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> yeah Alfred Nobel, yeah. It's a peace prize. <laughs>
But I was wondering, when you talked about that incident with the ex, which I just thought it was just perfectly, it was just a brilliant illustration mm. of what happens with, when we have evolutionary impulses, mm. um, which we're frightened of, and so we suppress or repress or and, get, and then get a little bit angry about, yeah. and we can't explain that yes. anger, so we start pointing fingers. Yeah. And I wondered if the more we try to suppress or oppress those um, those feelings, those impulses, the more likely we are they are to rear their ugly heads in sort of surprising ways. For example, I don't know, is the stereotypical midlife crisis, you know, so, something to do with that, potentially, that suddenly know, wanting a younger... I know so little about the midlife crisis, but the evolutionary perspective would be a man should have at least three families by 50. Mm. And, like, and this, is, this, is, this, this should be a chance for him to set up a new family. And if he has resources or energy, yeah. And, and to set up a family, you do need a woman in, her, in the height of her fertility. There's this really shit thing about uh, the female body. And it is that there is a fertility window. Yeah. Which we can't ignore. No, we can't. And it also, it's like, I sometimes I, I've got growing sympathy for middle-aged men. It's like, I'm so boring, but you're going to end up with a 32-year-old and everyone's going, oh, Alan, <laughs> be original. But it's just... <laughs> and a sports car. Yeah, well, a sports car maybe as well, but then it's all kind of linked in, isn't it? Because if a sports car helps you get a 32-year-old girlfriend... Or a 25-year-old girlfriend. Sorry, Alan. <laughs> yeah, that's more like it. Did you see that graph about Leonardo DiCaprio? Yes. Did you see it? No. Oh, my God. It was just so glorious to see a graph used for it. So Leonardo DiCaprio has never gone out with a woman over 25. So someone did a graph of his age. So since his early 20s, going up to... I didn't realise now he's mid-40s. Mm. And the women have all stayed at this bottom line. It's pictures of them. And they, they range between 20 and 25. Is currently with, I think, a 23-year-old. And the thing is, it's... Again, I do have a little bit of sympathy for him because it's obviously just who he's attracted to and the older you get the creepier it becomes i think you say that in your, in your book don't you that mm. in so you might be getting mm. older but it doesn't mean that your desires change yeah but also evolution would have wired us the wrong way if men were attracted i'm not saying that they can't have an attraction but if they were highly attracted to women who were post-menopause we would have died out and also again there's people who would hate me saying that because some people think that it's much, much more affected by culture and I should reflect that. Do you know Naomi Alderman who wrote The Power? Yeah, yeah. So she wrote this incredibly successful book and, it, and it's very anti-evolution in a way because what happens is overnight some women have become able to punish men or be cruel to men. They're stronger than men, they have this power. And so rather than evolution being something that happens over thousands of generations, instantly women become like men, which is domineering and awful and torturing and rapists and all these things, right? So... It's a brilliant book and everyone loves it. Um, and at Latitude, she and I did a panel about power when she said she fundamentally disagreed with me. So I was talking about we look at the female body because of what it tells us about female fertility. And she said, I fundamentally disagree with you. If men were on the front of all magazines, we'd look at men which I don't agree with. Mm. I think what happens is they put men on the front of magazines, they don't sell very well. <laughs> it's really interesting, apparently, with now with things like... Um, men's health magazine they can use pictures of men to illustrate how men can do things but not just you enjoy it. I mean obviously it's very different with like 
gay men who do like to look at men. Yes, please. Yes, yes, please. And that was what was interesting about the, the story of Playgirl, because they were selling it and they thought it was proof that some women liked to masturbate to pictures of men and then they found out they had no female readers. <laughs> oh, yes. hilarious. Yeah, really hilarious. <laughs> but then, of course, because then it's about male sexuality rather than female sexuality, whoever the goal or whoever the desired object is. Now, this is something that I thought was super, super fascinating in your book, where you talk about female desire. And there was these experiments that you oh, yeah. talk about where um, both male and female... The Chivers ones. Yeah. Yes, were presented with videos yeah. and they had various things So this is one that was like... Kind of, so oh, electrodes, yes. To test how, how aroused they were. Yes, yeah. And the men would say whether they were aroused mm. or not by the images and yes. then the data showed yes. that it was pretty yes. correct. Yeah. Whereas the women... Yeah, the women were claiming, oh no, I, I got nothing at the bonobo sex. Yeah, the, um, the, the gay men's sex does nothing for me but they had almost exactly the same amount of lubrication and engorgement. Yeah, it's really interesting. Some people took it socially to mean, oh, women are turned on by everything. They're dirty pervs, but <laughs> society has made them be so prudish they can't admit how much they love animals fucking. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and Meredith Chivers had this argument and then some other people who had conducted the study with her that this was a self-protection mechanism. It's really interesting So I... In my first book, I wrote about, very briefly, about um, orgasm in rape. So it's um, something that happens to some people's bodies. And obviously, it can happen to men who are raped, but it happens to women who are raped. And um, there are kind of support groups online, but it's a very odd area because especially for rape cases that go to court or people who are in relationships who then have to speak to a partner about a physiological thing that happened to them. And so I just wrote about that in terms of that study that the body can really, really lubricate from violent sex you don't want and it's trying to protect you and it's learned to protect you. And um, one of the things that was so wonderful was having letters from people or emails from survivors of assault who'd never understood that sort of thing. There was one woman who said she was haunted forever not just by the assault but that he kept saying, you're loving this, you're so wet, you're loving this, you're so wet. And she said, you've just, you've just literally made me understand what was going on because the whole time I was like, what... I, it was the most horrific, horrible experience, yet my body was telling him something else. Just to qualify, I just wanted yes. to explain that, mm. um, that you were talking about in the book that uh, women almost auto-lubricate yes. to protect themselves yes. against the damage that would be otherwise yeah. incurred. And yeah. we've evolved that the women that are most likely to survive mm. sex, which sounds horrible, doesn't it? Yeah. But the mo women most likely to survive sex and not be injured or damaged mm. by uh, you know, yes. cavemen or whoever yes. it was, you know, yeah. having sex with them, um, would be those that produce lubrication. At the um, slightest sexual signal exactly yeah. so yeah. any sexual signal will then hopefully yes. generate some sort of lubrication because then the impact of a man thrusting mm. in and out of you mm. won't be damaging yeah or it's damaging yeah ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I've been reading a lot of books lately mm. that come out about the um, biology of the female um, genital organs. Uh, so yeah. lots of vulva talk. Yes. And I feel like I understand the, the vulva and the vagina much better than I yes. ever have done before. But I had sort of just taken it for granted mm. that I understood the penis. I just oh, felt like I understood yes. it. Yeah. And this is the first time that there was parts of the penis described mm. to me that I had no idea about the function of. Mm. For example, the bell end the oh, head yes. of the penis oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I mean I was reading this and my husband was going what what are you reading so I was, I was reading it and going oh oh <laughs> the whole yeah. time yeah. and that chimps or um yeah. don't have, have, have they have a smooth shaft yeah. so, tell us about it tell us. so the human male has a glands at the top of the penis which apparently um acts as a basically like a plunger like a sperm removal device we know that we multi-partnered in our evolution whether that was all consensual sex is up for debate whether women were intentionally having sex with multiple men to ensure better genes for their children um that's up for debate but Whatever happened, the human male has learned to compete with other males, and part of that is in actual the act of sex and in his sperm. And so, um, there's a really amazing experiment by um, I think his name's Gallup, the guy who did these experiments, and he did them with all these different dildos with this um, synthetic vagina and this like flowery paste to see which shape of penis removed the most sperm. And he found any kind of glands at the top, basically a bell end, um, removed 95% of the paste wow. and a smooth and a smooth penis removed about 20%. And, they, and, and it's related to how long we have sex as well, because they always knew we have sex for too long, as in it's completely unnecessary f- to create other people. We do it for partly pleasure and bonding, but... The other idea is that there's this like deep, thrusty sex is all to do with sperm competition, which was then for me made, oh, that's why porn's like that. It makes this complete like light bulb moment. Because <clears throat> for me watching porn, because that's what I was doing for research, I was like, I do understand that argument of like, of course women watch this less. I wouldn't come from sex like that. That sex looks aggressive. That sex doesn't stimulate the clitoris. So it's not. And then you go, oh, I see it's for men. Men watching other men would make you want to do thrust, thrusty, aggressive, get that sperm out sex. All about spreading the seed. Mm. And you were talking about, well, there's two things you talked about there. One was the time it takes to have sex, as you were talking about in the book, that chimpanzees yeah. take perhaps be 15 seconds yeah. to have sex. And the intravaginal ejaculatory latency time, yes. um, the, average yes. in, the average in men in the UK is yeah. 5.4 minutes. Mm. But uh, I mean, I think it, it may be sure you reference four minutes, yeah. but I think it varies around the world. Yeah. So if it's 5.4 minutes and it's so much longer, what did, there must be some advantage so it has to be running away for longer. Yeah, always. This is what's quite lovely about this area of study is sometimes if the end result is, okay, so humans have sex for five minutes, why it's then it's then the reasoning is if there isn't a if it doesn't aid conception it must aid all of the things around conception that either bond people together or make them more likely to have sex or more likely to cheat cheat on their partners it has to relate doesn't it to pleasure or yeah success in child rearing but you really also focus not just on the penis you talked about the gonads and this for me was super fascinating yeah. the fact that uh, humans have a mid-range size yes. gonad yeah so basically this is all to do with how many partners the female of a species has so seahorses where the male does all of the care so the female seahorse she gives him an egg to fertilize which he then looks after in his body so that's zero sperm competition so how many sperm does he have one. 
<laughs> he has one sperm that he puts into the egg. Yeah. Yeah. So he does it because he knows it's a little bit like the opposite, like how women don't have lots and lots of eggs to ensure like a fish, like some of them get fertilized. We, we release one a month and it's the sperm that are competing. So with apes, some apes are very monogamous, like gibbons, and they have a low sperm count. And other apes are really domineering, like gorillas. And um, so they have a harem where they don't compete with other men and they have very low sperm competition, which means they have small balls. Gibbons and gorillas, tiny balls, like grape size, if they were the um, same size as human beings. And human beings, we have a medium amount of competition because we're mostly monogamous, but that doesn't mean you don't have to compete. I wonder why the penis size changes so much. Well, that's, that's one of the mysteries because I couldn't find a definitive answer where it's just proven. And, and it hasn't been proven that it's selected for. And vaginas can't accommodate really big penises. So the idea that actually they've been kept... I, so my theory and all of it is that socially we respect a large penis. I think that, especially before clothes, there must have been something where a large penised man was given more social respect and maybe had more access to sexual partners. But the, the penis size has been capped because past a certain size you're going to damage the female body and not be able to get women pregnant and yet so fetishized so fetishized but 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 in every area of culture yes like from people talking about babies penises the midwife congratulating yeah and and Mm -hmm. and people do and there's a curb enthusiasm episode where he says like well done your kid's got a big there's this it, it's all through culture. As a boy, when mm. you're growing up, porn sort of magnifies, one, what the expectation would be, but also it's presentation, isn't mm. it? You know, they're filmed from certain angles, yeah. they've shaved the root, the lightning yes. angle, except all of this. Also, all the uh, measurement guides that they've done in the past had all been self-reported. Yeah. So guys were going, oh, yeah, yeah. I've got this long penis. It went down, penis. didn't it, when it became... <laughs> in the UK, they did a study in 2016, um, and they took 16,000 people, mm. and they got medical professionals to measure all these penises, yes. and the average was 5.1 inches. Yeah. And everyone was going, what? Hang on, aren't we... T- yeah, Adrian uh, yes. Mole had a six-inch penis, yes. and why isn't everyone yeah. meant to... And actually, it just wasn't true. No. People uh, have been adding an inch on. Yeah. And uh, there's that study that you talk about where women chose a penis. Yes, that the they... ideal penis, and they were, they were choosing for a relationship and for a one-night stand or a shorter fling, and in both cases, it was floating around the six-inches mark. It wasn't... It, no one was picking an eight-inch dick and going, that's me, that's the love of my life right there. Yeah. Although they did a study in America, but Mr Ed did a study where both the female ideal penis and the male ideal is it for themselves yes. penis was at least an inch larger than the average penis oh, size really? which yes. must be really challenging if you are a man learning about sex mm. and that's how they often do important. now via porn yeah and you're learning that deep thrusting is really important yes. um, yeah. um women seem to particularly enjoy you mm. know having their mouth stuffed with penis which no. does not seem likely no. because no one seems to particularly enjoy choking it choking is hugely fetishized yeah. as well there was an article about this yeah. just last I week i read that yeah about this increase in death was it oh it was something yes. the... so so what it is is that and it happens a lot in law is that there seems to be um it's really interesting because actually I was reading that article thinking this goes hand in hand with female sexuality as as a society we're becoming much more permissive and expecting that our women have their own sexuality like it's become a quite it seems to become quite a popular defense that a woman who is choked to death by an intimate partner was doing dangerous sex games and I just think it's a, a loophole at the moment that I think you would have to show evidence that that person enjoyed it in their real life I was thinking how would I solve this and I think you would have to have a previous partner going yeah she loved to be choked mm-hmm. otherwise that's murder. <laughs> mm.
And in, in that article, there was, or oh, was it another article mm. that I read alongside it, because yeah. I got inter interested yeah. in it after that, um, where someone said that they spoke to a male friend who yes. said that he does that with yeah. his girlfriend. And, yeah, and, and, then his, and then he asked his girlfriend, and she said, no, I was doing it for you. And he's like, I thought you wanted it. But the thing I didn't like about that article, and this is only because I've spent so long looking at the studies for the book, is when the assumption is then, oh, it's pornography, when actually... I do think people have always died in this way. Like, I do think men have always choked women to death. Um, it's, a, it's a really awful thing, but it has always happened. And sometimes we, put, we lay everything at porn's door to kind of avoid the education and the, the really long conversations that have to go on. Something you spoke about in your book about porn, which I thought was fascinating and also raised some very controversial questions, was about we always assume, well, a lot of us mm. assume that porn would increase violence mm. against women, objectification yeah. and rape. And there was a study that showed... People... In America, yes. yes. Yeah, so that study was all to do with... Because it's, it's very difficult to study actual causality with porn because there are so many factors in a person's life. But I, I thought it was quite an interesting one. They studied the states in America that had Wi-Fi and had more access to the internet versus others and their rape rates. And they found that more internet equaled a decrease in rape. And obviously there were lots of other factors and there might be a study one day that studies people from children through to the grave. And you do need to do that kind of study and have more specifics. My mum said, my mum read a really early draft of the book, like just because they haven't proved something doesn't mean it's not true, <laughs> which is really interesting because some of us we can't help but have emotional feelings about the, what the effects of porn or what... I, I also think that's really affected by the kind of porn you've seen because that kind of really violent porn I haven't seen. Had you... Stop me if it's too personal. Yes, yeah. Had you watched much porn before studying? No, not book? at all. And so, and even with so that's the, the, the cases I talk about in in the book. Uh, one in two thousand and one, it was the first time I ever saw porn. Then at university, I walked in with my boyfriend and his friends watching porn. That was the second time. The third time was um, with a boyfriend who really used porn and wanted to watch it. And so I watched. So I'd seen it three times until I was researching. And that's what I was aware of. I'd read so, so much feminism about porn and not seen any. So in my head, it was literally women being kicked in the fanny. But because I'd read... Yeah, because all I'd, 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 I thought it was everyone was going to be being pissed on, spat at. I, I honestly had such vicious images. And then the stuff I was watching was all like stepmoms coming in <laughs> to their son's bedroom kind of thing, like in a saucy apron. And I was like... <laughs> It was just so mild compared to what I had expected it to be. Yeah. And yeah. how did it feel watching so much porn? I didn't watch so time. much porn. I didn't okay. use so much in comparison to it. Um, I became so very quickly used to penetrative sex. The thing that at the beginning I'd found so shocking in 2001, this idea of a close-up on a vagina and a penis and just how purple everything looked and how aggressive I thought it was, I very quickly stopped finding it. Although yesterday, this wasn't porn, um, I was walking my dog, and it goes back to what we're talking about sex in private. I saw two people having sex in the woods, two men having sex, not a man and a woman. And I found it so shocking. And I literally, afterwards, I kept wanting to tell people, I saw two people having sex, like I saw one of their bums. Like, <laughs> and I found it so shocking. And I yeah. thought, isn't that interesting? Because obviously, again, I thought something very, some very primal circuitry is going on. But then I was thinking about the pornography going, oh, I guess I got very used to it. They're not real. They can't see me. It's just like a movie. I didn't go and see a, a cinema film until I was 12. And uh, my auntie Juliet took me and my sister to go and see Ghostbusters. And we were too scared and had to leave the cinema. And I thought, it's like that again. You just get used to things really quickly. But in Ghostbusters, I didn't know it wasn't real. Wow. And then I think that happened with porn quite 
quickly. So you watch it a couple of times and then you go, oh, yeah, it's not really real. But in the woods, it was real all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. Did it? I wonder what that, mm. that feeling is when you see people having sex out, out in the wild. I, I think it, I think it had, a fear, I had a, fear, a fear response and a shock response. It was more that. Yeah. And that's what I think is really primal. So many questions I've got. I mean, I, I, mean, I was interested, um, particularly you, you know, you've written down, men make up over 80% of the murdered and almost 90% of the murderers yeah. and 98% of mass murderers. Yeah. So just sort of mm. riffing off your sense of, I need to get out of here when you saw two men having yeah. sex. Yeah. I was just made to think about what does it feel like being a woman mm. um, and subject to the male gaze and being in, how do you feel mm. safe? It's an odd thing because I think what's interesting is when you start to question it, one of the really great cultural or social discussions we're having at the moment, and it's actually what's really great, um, is that, um, so what happened after the hashtag with me too, but actually a little bit before, and actually, I'll tell you what, Laura Bates's Everyday Sexism is a really fantastic example of this. Um, people on social media, so that for the vast majority were... Uh, women were explaining this happened to me and it made me feel this and I think some men did just did not realize that was happening and I think there are men my age who suddenly found out that all of their friends walked the long way home or would get scared after a certain time of day or that every single one of their female friends knew tricks like pretend to be on the phone have car keys between your fingers like things that then sounded like Victorian <laughs> you put like you put car keys like yes yeah, automatic and I've been doing that since I was 11 or there's there's um just that the world can be a different place and I think that's a really amazing thing because that act of empathy the fact that we've all got friends who now would understand oh if I'm walking behind a woman late at night I'll cross the road um I'm so grateful when people do that yeah that's what's really fantastic is we have ways of going to people I'm not a threat to you I'm not a threat. You're safe. Don't worry. And all of that thing. And But the fact that a man my age or younger is more likely to be attacked on a night out to experience violence than a woman my age, it's just that we teach women that sexual violence is the worst thing that can possibly happen to them. And there's obviously a lot of stigma and shame still to this day involved around sexual crimes. And that's why we teach girls uh, to protect themselves, but also to be scared. Do we think potentially, mm. that this is because sex for women is still treated as the gem to be protected. Yeah. I think we, what we can't unlearn, because I don't think it's to do with culture in any way, what we can't unlearn is that sex results in pregnancy and that if it's uh, the result of unconsenting sex with a male you don't know, we have learned that that is dangerous. The reason that there are still cultures now who abandon rape victims is because our ape ancestors, and I'm not calling any human beings apes, but that, that's where, this is like, it's in our DNA, unfortunately, and some cultures support it and make it stronger, and our culture is trying to dismantle it and intellectualise our way out of it. But the, the effects of sex is children, and the effects of children who don't have input is a drain on everybody. So that's what it comes from. And partly why mm. I imagine it's used as a war, uh, as a weapon yes. of war. Yeah, and again, um, and it's also a weapon of war against men. Like in the Congo, there was a terror... I mean, because they, they used rape actually as desecration, as in they, they did more violent things than just the... Um, rape and also I really wanted to write more about it but rape in male prisons the minute the minute there aren't women to subjugate certain men use it and it's literally a way of creating status 
that was sort of leading me on to my next question. Yes, it was about yeah. sort of, um, because you wrote a lot about the importance in society yeah. about men's status, that, you know, you need to be the strongest male to therefore be regarded as someone who could be security providing mm. and then pass on your genes. Yeah. And then when that baby is young, therefore protect the, the woman and the child mm. because you want your genes to succeed. Mm that actually you become someone who creates an environment of fear for those under you so that they don't challenge you. Yeah, and socially they're very unattractive qualities, the animal version of them. But then when you look at politics, especially at the moment, you then realise people really respected Barack Obama. They trusted him and his authority. So he had a kind of status that socially we think is really great, yet very high status. He'll look after everybody, but he didn't seem to be aggressive. Whereas there are other politicians, including Donald Trump, who is using a diminishment being very uh, well, racist and misogynistic and to demonstrate power and doing... He's much more in the animal camp of that... And that's what was really interesting about the whole grab them by the pussy thing, because people responded positively to it, I think, on a quite an animal level, as in just an unconscious. They thought, that this well, is a go. big, he's early a, animal. Yeah, he's, he's, that's, that's, he's, he's the top. Yeah. It made me think, trickling all the way down mm. to how we experience life, just walking down the street about catcalling oh, yeah. and the purpose of that. Mm. That when, you know, you get, I think there was like a Sex in the City, is there a Sex in the City episode? When someone catcalls someone and then oh, they, yes. when Miranda so goes up yeah, yeah. and says like, all right, here's my number, mm, how about mm. it? And then he was yes, terrified yeah. and like, hey, crazy lady, and, yeah. and walked off. Yeah. So it wasn't as a sort of way of trying to show virility to the, yeah, to the they woman. Don't, they don't think it's going to work. It is a form of diminishment. It's lit, and it is also it's I feel like it is again maybe subconsciously but it is saying you are there for me or I see you only that way I see no humanity in you I see just that it's weird because in your book I, I thought it was saying I see your fertility yeah well, which I suppose that I know that's very reductive mm. you know I, I see your ability to father my children yeah so mother, oh, yes. mother. <laughs> uh, but I guess that is is part of it but I think there's a, there's a threatening aspect to it which is like oh I would take that from you it makes me, yeah. yeah, it makes me frightened, I suppose. That's why we hate catcalling, because it yeah. makes you feel small, it makes you feel humiliated. Yeah. So just the other day, you know, it's yeah. very. It's been very hot in London, mm. and every, there was one day it was particularly baking, mm. and every woman I saw pretty much was in a, a, a dress. Yeah. I mean, it just yeah. made a lot of sense <laughs> that yeah. day yeah. Um, to be wearing not very much. Mm. Um, and I, it's funny, isn't it? I, I don't get catcalled very much anymore no, I think exactly. I've just sort of started to tip over yeah. the edge I don't know whatever at 32 or the, Four, yeah. 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 Started, yeah. yeah anyway I, I just I don't anymore which is a huge relief actually yeah, a relief. um yeah. but walking down the street that day a couple of guys said something about something or other about my body and yes. I ignored them yeah. realized that I left my sunglasses back mm. at the meeting I had to walk past them again oh, gosh, yeah. and thought well this time I'm just going to look in my bag so yeah. that they don't look at me and they went oh why so serious baby why so serious yeah. and I lost my, my shit I lost my shit and I said well, well maybe because it's like you talking yeah. to me on the street bothering me and they went well that's not very nice yeah. and then I threw my bag down and said I've just had it I have just <laughs> had enough and then they they walked yes. they walked off and I was like but the reason I think that's brilliant is because what I hope is that next time they will you know again it's a little bit like the puppy like you you learn and if they learn that one woman in 50 is going to put her bag down and shout at them it will make it a less attractive thing if every woman has always shuffled put her head down pretended she can't hear them they're not scared of us 
and they don't have to be scared of us. They think it's safe. There was a really interesting um, podcast that a woman in Australia did where she interviewed catcallers. So she walked around Sydney and every time a man shouted at her, she said, can I interview you? I'm a journalist. And it's so fantastic because every single one of these men thought they were making women's nights and were a great laugh. And um, it was so fascinating. One of the men that she interviews, she says, do you understand that women laugh because we're scared? And he said, no. And she says, okay. So from our perspective, he said, because he would always say, he would, he would pinch bums at bus stops, this guy. So he was talking about his thing. And he said, people love it. I liven up their night, da, da, da. And he was talking about groups of women and then individuals. And he said, they always laugh at me. And she said, well, so I'll tell you from my experience, what happens is someone like you, who's bigger than me, who I don't know in a strange place at night, I, um, I try to appease you. And there's something that women do that I don't know men know about this. And what we do is polite laugh. And, and she said, and she said, I go home and I feel sick. I go home and feel angry with you. And he said, just because you've had a fucked up life and just because you've, you've probably been abused or something, just because you've had a fucked up life, you can't talk for other women. Wow. Um, and he and it was interesting because he started off being quite empathetic and then he switched on her and decided no she was messed up mm. but I was listening to that as a woman going she's describing all female experience like yeah. I'm yeah. sure I'm, I'm also I, I'm sure that there could be a group of women on a hen do or something where they would find this man genuinely funny because they wouldn't be scared but the majority of my interactions with men I don't know who've approached me has been polite laughing and hating that I have to do it <laughs> protection survival of course because it stops aggression well exactly and what when i lost my shit mm. and shouted at these guys mm. and then realized after i picked up my sunglasses from a meeting and had to walk back the same mm. way that i was terrified because i thought yes. they might still be there yeah. and actually i might be under physical threat because yeah. i had shit because i'd let that guard down yeah but that's why we ignore them because the smallest thing you think what if they you don't want to fight with them and also you don't want them to shout at you also you don't want to create attention on yourself there's all things you can be scared of which isn't just oh i think they're murderers like but it is really inbuilt i stopped cycling because um, I very, like you, yeah, I really very rarely get catcalled anymore. It just doesn't happen. When it does happen, it's so weird, and it's usually like a mutter, which is much easier to ignore. But more sinister as well sometimes. Yeah, yes, more sinister. <laughs> but also you can kind of go, I didn't hear it, mm. or it wasn't really. There's this thing that people shout out of lorries, which is lucky saddle. Oh, Do you I know this? this? No. Lucky saddle. Oh, because you're riding the saddle. Because your fanny's on a saddle. Mm. And it's so disgusting and so gross. And also, so you would think, like, I'm on a bike, so I'm not scared of literally them. I don't think they're going to run me over. I don't think they're going to get out of the car. But it, I, it, the, the, the anger that goes through my body for the rest of the day when I'm having an argument in my head of how dare you, how dare you. And um, I have started... Not in that instance, but I have started saying to people, that's very rude. Just like a matron. Because I just feel like saying something to them. I had this idea, like, it would be great if we had a phrase and I was trying to think of something like, we could say something like, can you please be respectful? Yeah. Or I'm a, like, can you please be respectful of me? Just because anything that pierces the idea that they're allowed to do it. But yeah, now, so like, you're, you're very rude. <laughs> yeah. So this is exactly what yeah. I adopted yes. a couple of years yeah. ago when I was still in catcord. Mm. I can't believe I feel like I'm sort yes. of retired from yeah. street harassment. Yeah. Um, but they would say things to me around the area that I live all the time. And I would say, how disgusting, yeah. like a middle-aged matronly yes. lady. Yeah. And they would... They had have to, to, to ruin their funds yeah. so that the next person that comes past, they think that person might say something. Yeah. 
I, wa I was wondering about um, porn in general and whether if people did have it, I think you mentioned that imagine if we had it on things like Netflix or on some streaming platform which you had to pay for, whether that would A, change the content of porn, yeah. B, change how, um, I suppose, the safetyness of potentially yeah. of, of, of performance. I think the people who are in the pawns that are most watched should continue to get royalties and they currently don't. Right, so suddenly it's a billion dollar industry which is kind of all regulated and um, can make people very rich. Everything, people would be so enthusiastic to make it and, and to make the kind that people wanted to watch and we would absolutely have more facts about it because so the study, I think it's called Harder and Harder, claims to prove that pornography hasn't become more aggressive in the last 20 years because the porn that people watch most and do most like thumbs up likes on is is where women seem to be enjoying themselves it's still the most which is really heartening for some people yeah. who think that kids are just watching people being kicked in the fanny um then you would absolutely know if you had a kind of netflix system where millions of people in every country were watching it you would absolutely know also what's interesting um the statistic about that it's quite often female consumers who are looking for the most violent videos. And for whatever reason that is, this isn't their data, this is from Everybody Lies, that book which is just Googling, which is really interesting in sexual proclivities. Like in India, um, lots and lots and lots of men Google breastfeeding, sexual breastfeeding, being breastfed. It's just a fetish, it's a cultural, and it's so odd. So he has lots and lots of se sexual statistics and like Google doesn't lie. It has, it has no judgment. It, all it will tell you is this country is into this and this country is into that. And um, women are far, far more likely to look for violence and, and women were like 90% of the people searching for rape videos. And I don't know if that's fear. It doesn't mean that they were gonna masturbate to it or turned on. It might be, I just want to know what it looks like or I want to see what's there or there can be so many reasons for why. Yeah. You mentioned that more and more women are starting to use pornography yes. as well. Which so, And it's interesting because feminists say that that's because we are all kind of trained to please men and that women watch it as instruction manual. Which, and so that thing, we to go back to that article about choking, that's what that was suggesting, is that women watch porn, think men are into those acts yeah. and then provide it. And, and but, but it could also be the opposite. I, do, I just can't imagine. Matt Crosby had a routine about how um, he accidentally rimmed his now wife. And I'm not selling a secret because um, he did stand up about it. But essentially it was about how um, they were kind of, just the first time they were together. And I think it was some kind of clumsiness where um, he was going down on her and maybe obviously just like missed. And then she thought that's what he was into. Because we have such non-verbal communication yes. when it comes to sex. So if someone does something to you and you really like them and you think, okay, I guess here we go. Yes, they like ribbing. <laughs> and so they both kind of, and then I, so I think then she did it to him and then he thought, oh, she must be into this oh, and no. then did it to her. Until and then, they've both got into it. Yeah, or, or, <laughs> or the opposite, to then have a conversation to go like, Sorry, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> we both stop ribbing each yeah. other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I guess if you've, again, I mean, I just, this is where the, all of the education stuff comes important because you can't just presume that someone's into choking. Yeah. And there's such a difference between like light hands being on someone's neck and then like, oh, oh I should definitely make them pass out. Well, that's well, the, that's part of the yeah. problem because they are pressing in the wrong place. Yeah. So often you're getting compression of the carotid artery so there's no blood going to the brain and you're asphyxiating them by yes. crossing off the trachea at the same time. Yeah. You're going, so they can't have any brain blood yes. and they're oxygenating. That seems like a very bad yeah. combination. And obviously people don't generally know how hard to press yeah. that you need to do to get to, get yeah. to you know, maybe a light-headed sensation that yes. might be fun. And that's yeah. a similar reason why... Um, you know, some male suicides, mm. and this is awful, some male yeah, accidental, yeah. ac accidental asphyxiation. Oh, yeah. 
um, because they were, you know, uh, they, they get a little lightheaded, so they get a bit of a rush, they get a harder penis. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes they pass out before they can get yeah. rid of the cord around their neck. It's terrifying. It's, 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 it's just so sad, isn't yeah. it? It's just, just any kind of accidental death is so tragic. And it's just so sad because also when it, when it looks like it could be, yeah, wanting to hurt yourself or, and then the fact that someone probably who cares about you very much has to find your body, all of those kind of things. And uh, there was someone who I met at a gig and her son had, they didn't know if it was pleasuring or suicide. He was 13. And it's just, I mean, as, as a parent, and it was relatively recent, it was a couple of months ago at the time, but you normally go, I just don't know how you ever, like, did the, always the not knowing yeah. was he horny <laughs> was he like had, had he had enough what could I have done to what can you talk to I mean that's a horrible accident isn't it just horrible yeah. you kind of want a safety mechanism they can solve everything now they can solve everything they used to really use good citrus fruit they used to use very um, yes. the citrus oranges fruit oranges and the Tories yeah, uh, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, that was why it didn't work so oranges isn't sharp enough to, to, oh to, that's what it was I think for that, I think that's what could it was for <gasps> So, so, so there was a case where um, it became a very Tory thing to do, which was this kind of auto-erotic asphyxiation. And there was someone who was found, I'm sure it was found at Parliament, with an orange in his mouth on the back of a door. So As, a new friend is yeah. So I always thought the orange thing was a bit like, you know, like a suckling pig with an apple. Mm. I never understood that, that the citrus is supposed to wake jolt you into a wake. Because you know when you bite amazing. down when you're having a tequila slammer yeah. and you bite down the and it really sort of gives you a bit of a jolt. Oh my gosh. That's what I was taught it was always for. Oh my gosh. I had no idea that was what the citrus was for. That is incredible. But no, but there has to be something where almost. Yeah, I just think it might always be licorice. It wants to just disintegrate after a couple of minutes. So if you did lose consciousness, it's going to let you go anyway. Yeah. But, but mm. because we never talk about sex openly yeah. and it's so taboo and it's meant to be yeah. hidden so because it was designed and, to be hidden. Yes, secrets and half information. And also the fact is the fact you have to learn this stuff when you're young. And, and it goes back to the hebophilia and the paedophilia thing. We worry so much about the sexualization of children. Do they have the worldview to slot that information in if we give it to them? Are we, are we teaching them they should do certain things? Are we going to scare them? And also we have uh, a lot of incest repulsion so it should not be your parents talking to you about, mm. you want a citrus fruit. <laughs> you want a nice <laughs> tangy, to do it. little t- tangy lemon in there. No, it has to be state provided. Or, or, or ignored places. because you don't send your kids to those lessons. Or they, you yeah. know, and we were talking in another yes. podcast about how um, sort of lots of schools, with Lynn Enright, mm. how lots of schools can opt out of, yeah. of providing that. And I yes. find that absolutely incredible because you are not trying to overtly sexualise your children. No. You are trying to... Giving them safety roads, tools. Yeah, not yeah. roads, it's sex safety. Yeah. Um, no, I, no, you're, you're, you're tooling them up for everything that life... So that's what school obviously has to be anyway. You're supposed to give yourself all these basic tools that in adulthood will become really useful. And yeah, um, the fact that kids can opt out from it is really complicated. Really complicated. You describe a really nice sort of scene, hypothetical scene, yeah. how sex and power play mm. can work very beautifully within relationships yeah. Yeah. in in your own mm. room where maybe the the weaker partner can play at being dominant and straddling yes, yes. and then the stronger person yeah. can allow their hands to be pinned yes. back and this sort of role play of mm. power exchange can actually be a really loving playful place yes. yeah and um it doesn't it, even have to be loving actually because mm. i think that's a t- sometimes we were, all, we were always happier with sex which has feelings attached, True. but actually it's just the playfulness, it's just the safety, really, which yeah. all this communication, isn't it? Yeah. 
I think some of the most exciting things can sometimes be with someone you don't know at all because there is that excitement of going, oh, this could be brilliant. The actual learning of another person's body. And if you're open to that, that open to exploring and recognising their cues Mm -hmm. and I'd <laughs> yeah. be able to go. Do you actually like women? No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's move on from. Let's yes. move on from that. Then. They're crossing that box. Yeah. yeah. I, I once went to a tantric evening, and oh, yeah. it was all fully clothed. It was all heterosexual couples, apart from me. Yeah. Because um, I, I was going with my friend uh, Laura Dodsworth, because oh, she yes. she want because I'm I'm I was I am probably still yeah. quite an uptight person, yeah. and she said, "And you just need to explore physicality." Wow. Okay. Um, and so she took me, here and we did. You know, lots of exercises, mainly just staring in each other's eyes, which is sounds like great. drama school, though. Oh, because that's what because that, that's I'm uptight, and that's what I've always found so hard about acting is I love all of the second bit, but I do not like the warm up where you have to massage each other and look at each other. <laughs> there wasn't really any massage; it wasn't okay, that sort of hands-on, yes, which yeah. I was quite happy with. Yeah. But there was um, finger dancing, which I found extraordinarily intimate, mm. where you just touch each other's hands and you move gently and rhythmically, yes. however you want to do it. The thing that was most sort of changing for me yeah. was the yes/no maybe game, yeah. where you would pass someone your arm, for example, yeah. and the idea was you were in control because you could say yes, no, and maybe. But the other person was allowed to do whatever they wanted to do to your arm, but you had to say whether you wanted to continue, whether you didn't want it to continue, oh, or whether, wow. well, actually, I'm not sure about this, but yeah, why don't you... I'm not, yeah, I'm not stopping you, but I'm not into it necessarily. Or, or but I'm yes. not not into it. Yeah, so, yeah. so the maybe was a genuine maybe, not a mm. polite English version mm. of no. So it's actually, fascinating. It's so I fascinating. like it. <laughs> also, I find it, even you talking about it, so confronting, because... No, not, not confronting that. I mean, I know how difficult I would find it to even admit I liked something. Ah. Like, cause Interesting, it, isn't, isn't it? Because, like, it wouldn't... I would, I would think I'd be fine with saying no, but I feel like I'd also say no to some stuff because I liked it. Oh. I, that hand thing is so interesting. I had a really in, intensely erotic experience with a girl called Gemma Whelan, and um, we were in a play together, and she, before we went on, just ran some fingers over my hands we were just having a chat and she's a very tactile person and I'm not a tactile person and she just ran her fingers all over my hands and my arm and I, I could still like almost feel it because it was so intense in the dark sitting with my friend just this slight light tickling yeah <laughs> but it's weird because yeah. also you could have misinterpreted that in, well you could have interpreted it in lots of ways yeah instead of thinking actually this is an it's, it's a, a kind thing that someone else is doing yes, because of just, their tactility it, it was just touch it was just touch yeah. yeah rather than it being an erotic experience or yes. it being you then re- retracting going oh, i don't want to be around this person because yeah. what have they done to me oh i see so yes. many ways that you can respond to being touched yeah and yeah. also again but it goes back to how you might feel if you feel a certain way about a girl in shorts we then attach feelings like what we're supposed to feel and what they're supposed to make us feel. And what did that make me aroused? Is that, if, does that make and, me and wrong? Then, and then, I... yeah, do they think I like them? Because mm. so often if you were going to avoid that person, it's because you think they've seen something in you or that you've you've re- reacted wrongly, all of those things. Then yeah. Was that your line? Oh, God, it's at the mm. beginning of the book. We don't see... Oh, and there's oh. Nin, yeah. We see it? things not as they are, but as we are. Yeah. Which was, I was like... yeah. Ah, that completely explains my odd response to so many people. <laughs> yeah, 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 that we all have this such a strong filter. When I was um, younger, so I've got ASMR, but I didn't know it. So oh. that's, that's why I think the touching things come up for me. So when I was younger, especially around children, so ASMR is just tingles that you get that I didn't know that not everybody got and that certain things set them off. So some people, it's like whispery voices and some people, and I definitely do get in shops when someone's, I get it when someone's really in charge. So someone folding up something and going, I'm going to gift wrap this for you or I'm going to do this and they're just in charge. These little tingles come up and it's like I'm kind of like half paralysed and it's kind of all at the back of my neck and it's incredible and, and it, it's really soporific. But I used to think it was sexual. Oh. And so I, 
children doing my hair, certain things would happen and I'd get all these tingles and I'd be like, oh no, oh no, I'm a paedophile. Because, because I didn't understand that, that that being a pleasure wasn't a sexual pleasure or that being relaxing wasn't me taking something from someone. But I had all this guilt about it and that's what I had about touch in general. And that so that you attract from touch. Yes, yeah. That's so interesting and clicking things into place mm. in my head as well, actually, as oh, you're yeah. saying that. Yeah where I've had things where people might do something for me mm. and it's a non-sexual thing and I felt those tingly feelings. Yeah. Not necessarily in my genitals. No, no, never. But yeah. on my, yeah, my scalp yeah. or, or my spine or mm. something and felt like, let's ignore that. Yes. But you yeah. probably shouldn't you be should feeling be doing that. This. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's something for me to take home and think about. Yeah. <laughs> We're having a conversation mm. about this. I've not heard about this before. I'm yes. a 43-year-old doctor. Not that I yes. should know about all of this. No. I, I, you know, of course, yeah. I, I can't know about everything. But one would hope I had some idea of what tactility meant. And I, you know, I have trained as a sex doctor, for mm. God's sake. Uh, but yet, the fact that actually that would be misinterpreted and that would mean that you would retract from contact, mm. which is so important to humans. Yes. Um, and the misinterpreted about the fact what that makes you mm. um, or what, what, it, what you're blaming the other person for. Yeah. And um, the contact thing, I've recently, in the last couple of years, started having massages and my, my agent had bought me a gift card for a massage and I wasn't going to go. She'd bought me one before. The first time I didn't, I just went and used the voucher in the shop of the, because I thought I'm not going to let someone touch me. And the second time I went and I gave the person I said they couldn't touch like all of these areas and they were trying to explain that it's just part of health it's just like but for me it actually probably felt like someone going to see a sex worker for the first time I felt that I was so disgusting they shouldn't have to touch me and they wouldn't want to and then how would I feel if they were touching those certain areas but I've had loads now and I'm so used to it and it's such a wonderful pleasurable thing and I think that's what actually allowing someone or within a, a parameter where it, which is agreed by both of you but actually it can be quite a huge thing to go oh I deserve pleasure has it made you feel differently about sex work? The, it's, the it's, made me, it's made me understand a lot more the importance how in every area, especially if we don't understand, you listen to the people who it's affecting and, and you believe them. So it actually doesn't matter what I feel about sex work as in a scenario where, let's say a man goes and he pays a woman for sex. It doesn't actually matter what I feel about that. Um, I have theories now about why men, certain men might enjoy the power dynamic or um, be sadistic uh, or, or sometimes obviously criminal, actively criminal. And then there's a whole other area to do with economics and, and work in general, which sex work is part of, which is where people do things they don't want to for money. Uh, so I can have all these emotional feelings and theories, but as a society and how um, our laws have to really change is you listen to people who are selling sex and what they need from us. And then that's what, I want to do yeah so that's so that's really simplified for me because before especially with feminism I was like I don't know this person says this and this person says this and what do you do and it's like oh you listen to the people who it's affecting also the empathy is so pointless without money like we can all feel as sorry as we like that the world is the way it is but unless we're actively changing the structure then it's not helping anyone is it and that yeah, feels, yeah. for me, like, and definitely you, you explore this in your writing, that it's partly because we live in this capitalist mm, society. Mm. It's very much interwoven with the fact that sex equals money. Yeah. And, um, and that that's so it's commodified. Yeah. And that that, w it, that couldn't change unless, unless we weren't necessarily living in a structure which yeah. 
is all focused on that. Yes. But then the thing is, it's always been commodified in a way. In a way, capitalism has made it so like erotic capital. Some people can actively like honestly sell it. But in a tribal society, it just might have been if everyone wanted to have sex with you, Naomi, you'd have had more um, food. People would have brought you more snacks. You, there'd have been more people trying to win your affections by proving I've killed this boar. I've done this for you. I'm doing this. Like, so it, was, it would still be really relevant. It would never become irrelevant. Sarah's book, Sex, Power, Money, is published by Faber and Faber and is available to buy from all good bookstores. As an accompaniment to the book, Sarah has a companion podcast where she interviews sex workers and delves further into the history of whore stigma and racism in porn. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoyed this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and gives the series a boost. Give us five stars, you lovely lad. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. And Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and of course, pleasure. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.